Welcome to this week's edition of Ocean Allison, where I bring you the best in ocean science, education, and conservation through conversations with people who are creating positive change for the ocean. This episode's Ocean Advocate is Ando Shaw. Ando is the co-founder and chief technology officer of Ballast Technologies, the world's first aquatic virtual reality company. Hi, Ando. Welcome to the show. Hey, Allison. I'm nice to be here. Yeah, I'm very excited to have you on the Ocean Allison podcast and to learn more about your story and to share it with listeners. Listeners, I hope that you will be very inspired by Ando and his message and his work and obviously his passion for the ocean because that's that's what this is all about, right? Um, <laughs> listeners, to give you guys a little bit of background on how Ando is joining us on the podcast today. Ando and I uh, recently crossed paths at the Blue Mind Summit in Miami, Florida, put on by the amazing Dr. Wallace J. Nichols. If you guys have not heard of Wallace J. Nichols, um, I definitely have mentioned him on several podcast episodes so far, and I actually had Jay Nichols on my podcast, I think like over a year ago now. But if you scroll back uh, several episodes after this, you guys can check out my episode with Jay Nichols, uh, Dr. Wallace Jay Nichols, as he's known, and his uh, theories all about Blue Mind and our brain on water, what it does to us, um, and his kind of latest endeavor, his, his um, book that should be coming up relatively soon is called Water is Medicine. So exploring all about the healing properties and the healing power of, of water for humans. And, and obviously, you know, then how we can be agents of change for helping the health of the water that heals us, right? So uh, anyways, Ando and I were at this summit all about Blue Mind and Water is Medicine. And Ando was actually one of the presenters at that summit. So I got to hear him talk a little bit about what he did. And then him and I connected afterwards and had some really great conversations and was super intrigued by what he's doing. So hence why he is on the show today. So I want to start out, Ando, with asking you, you grew up in India, in, in southern India, I believe. So, you know, as a child, what was your relationship with the ocean? <laughs> Actually, I grew up in eastern India um, in a city called Calcutta. Uh, which is a massive metropolis, I think of like 15 million people. Uh, I grew up in a very urban neighborhood. I hadn't been out in nature for most of my growing up. And I think I saw the ocean for the first time when I was 12. In, in our family, you're not allowed to get in the water. Um, and there's an interesting backstory to this, which is my grandfather died in a swimming accident when he was in his late 20s. So my, my dad was really young. He was, I think, two or three at the time. And basically that put my entire family in the mode of don't go near the water and nothing bad will happen to you. So as a result, nobody learned how to swim. And I was the first person uh, in my family in three generations to learn how to swim. Wow. So quite a separation from the ocean, I would say. <laughs> yeah. I mean, literally, we'd, I, I have uh, memories from my childhood where me, my sisters and my mom and dad, we'd be standing by the ocean and as waves would come, my parents would just shoo us back. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And so as a little kid, were you like wanting to get in or were you like fully on board with what your parents were saying? Like, oh yeah, no, I don't want to go in. 
So I actually grew up with this crippling fear of water and specifically the ocean. And I've been trying to figure out why and what the genesis of that was. And definitely this like almost I'd say genetic fear of water mm-hmm. has part has something big to do with it. But um, there was also something else. I think I was also scarred as a child by Jaws, like a lot of other people, mm-hmm. um, which is a terrible thing to happen. And in general, like just the lack of contact with bodies of water where you could actually swim in, you know, just made it worse. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So you grew up with the innate fear of water passed down through generations in India. And you're obviously on the Ocean Allison podcast right now. And we're at the Blue Mind Summit. Uh, so something, something <laughs> changed there, right? To dive into that a little bit, what inspired you initially to just learn how to swim? <laughs> there's a there's a pretty wild <laughs> story here. Um, so I was in my mid twenties and I was holidaying in Jamaica, and it was me and my buddies. And there's one, I think, morning we were just walking around the beach, and I see this sign that says "cheap diving," <laughs> and my alarm bell should have gone ringing, but for some reason I was like completely drawn to this thing. I'm like, and I had these visions of being underwater. And the fact that it's a cheap did not detract me from going there. Instead, I walked over and I asked the guy, hey, you know, I don't know how to swim, but I want to learn how to dive. Can you take me? And my friend who's with me, he doesn't know how to swim either. So these these two like fish out of water, literally. We go up to him and he's like, yeah, no problem, man. I teach you how to dive, man. Like, you know, <laughs> typical Jamaican confidence. And we're like, yeah, okay, cool. So, <laughs> you know, as naive as we are, he makes us sit down in front of a computer and he shows us three videos of how to dive. And that's the entirety of our education. Cut to my next memory of this is that we're on a ship sailing in the middle of the sea. There's a storm going on. And so now this guy, he's like strapping weights around our waist and he's like, yeah, just jump in. And my all my fears just kicked in at the same time at this point. And, but I'm like, no, I'm, I've gone this far. I'm going to do this. So uh, note to your listeners, please don't ever do this. Yeah, de- uh, definitely. Uh, anyway. <laughs> not making the, you know, the diving industry look super great in this story. But um, yeah, <laughs> listeners definitely go with a respectable <laughs> dive instructor when, when you do learn how to scuba dive. Not like Ando. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, okay, so we're in the water, and there's uh, there's a buoy on the surface, and there's a line down to the reef. And this buoy's been there for so long that this this line is completely overgrown with coral. And I'm petrified, so I'm hanging onto this line for dear life. And because it's overgrown with sharp coral, and I have no wetsuit, it's cutting me all over. I'm bleeding at this point. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, and I remember spending the next half an hour just telling myself that I will not judge diving and being in the ocean by this experience and I will do it again under much better circumstances. So at the end of this, we we come out alive. We decided to make a trip to Belize to learn how to scuba dive. We found a really amazing uh, dive school. We had the best instructor. And what happened was that while we were uh, learning how to dive, a hurricane hit us, of course. We had to be evacuated out of there. So I couldn't finish my dive certification. So I had to go finish in California. So it took me a long time. But essentially, <laughs> my, my impetus in all of this was to learn how to scuba dive because I had a theory in my mind 
that if I learned how to scuba dive, I would lose my fear of water and then be able to swim. Okay, but so now you do know how to swim. I do know how to swim, yes. yes. And you know how to scuba dive. <laughs> and I know how to scuba dive and I'm learning how to free dive now. Wow, nice. Okay, so you had this uh, innate fear of water in the ocean. Then you had a crazy first scuba diving experience that I would say did not go well. But you kept a very positive attitude and then you went on to eventually become a scuba diver, a certified scuba diver, and then now you scuba dive and swim and all the rest. So do you feel like your positive attitude and your just kind of vision of like, I'm going to learn to dive and that's going to help me overcome my fear of the ocean? Do you feel like that that actually worked? I think so. And um, this is one of the central themes of my life. One of the, the few talents that I'm blessed with is willpower. And I think with willpower, you can achieve almost anything. And it also has a lot to do with understanding the concept of fear itself. So I'm very interested in what is fear and what motivates people in general, uh, or rather demotivates them also. Mm -hmm. um, so I analyzed my own fears and I didn't see any rational basis for them. And in fact, almost all fears are completely rational. So I looked into that and I saw that I can't let this thing define me. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to find uh, a way around it. Um, and just by doing, you know, the hack that I did, which is a very extreme hack, which is like, okay, get comfortable by the water and, you know, understand the magic of the underwater world first, and maybe that'll cure my fear. And then I'll be able to swim without having an air supply and all of that. And so that sort of worked for me. And it's obviously not going to work for everyone. And there are there's different ways to approach this. <laughs> of course, lots of different <laughs> ways. But your yeah. way is definitely interesting. Um, okay, so in the intro, I mentioned that you are the uh, chief technology officer for Ballast Technologies. So I do just want, before we get into Ballast and, and the, the virtual reality, water-based virtual reality that you guys create, I do just want to kind of get into your skills and expertise in technology. I know that you studied computer engineering in college and you have worked on all sorts of technology projects that some of which I can't really even <laughs> fully understand what they are. But, um, <laughs> but you know, you've worked with you've worked with all sorts of companies all over the world, um, you know, technology companies uh, like Reddit. You've done all kinds of VR projects with different companies, 360 camera things, photography, video, all that kind of stuff. So while we were at the Blue Mind Summit, you know, I got to hear a little bit about your connection to Wallace J. Nichols, who obviously was putting on that Blue Mind Summit. And it's a really funny story about how you two met and how he was, I would say, a really big catalyst for you. I think for the first time using your skills in technology, you know, programming and hardware for something, you know, related to the ocean. So can you kind of share with listeners that story of, you know, meeting Jay and then having you know, his words or his advice be that catalyst? So I studied computer engineering um, and I specialized in uh, something called chip design, which is, you know, designing Frito-Lay's chips. I'm kidding. <laughs> you, <laughs> it's just designing. Um, no, it's like, is know, it chips. like chips in your phone? And Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Chips in, in phones, computers, things like that. Um, I've always been extremely fascinated with the creative side. And literally that means creating things. And it can be, you know, anything from a, a clock to a transistor. And that's what fuels me personally, is to, is to build new things. Um, and for the longest time, I did not think about 
how they could be used as long as the creation process itself is satisfying. So I ended up working in Silicon Valley for a bunch of big companies and startups here, building things that they needed. And I, I thoroughly enjoyed that process and learned so much. But at some point, I started asking myself the question of why I'm here, what's my purpose, and what does it have to do with the things I do in my everyday life? Um, and I found no answer to those questions. And all around me, I could see that, you know, I feel we are living in some sort of a golden age right now where uh, there, is a, there is a nexus of technology, society, information exchange. And at the same time, we're depleting the resources of this planet at a rate that we cannot refurbish them. So I feel like we're living in a very special time and that is is slowly coming to an end and it's going to come to a very painful end. Um, and I want to be able to try to slow that down and reverse it and understand at a societal level what can be done to change that direction that we're currently hurtling at. And I did not understand these questions and how to ask them at the time I was working as an engineer. And I just wanted to do something good. That was my that was my ethos. Mm -hmm. uh, but I didn't know how to define that good. So I put it in an environmental context because I'm very passionate about nature and animals and preserving and conservation. And I want to try and keep the healthy balance of the world around us. So I, I remember quitting my job and wanting to do something. And I got invited to this conference at Google. And Google used to do these things where they would just call researchers from completely different fields, whether it's astrophotography or marine biology, and give them to come give a talk about what they do and see how people can help them and how they can help other people. So this cross-pollination idea. Um, so I got invited to this talk. It was by Wallace J. Nichols, who, you know, in the title, it just said marine biologist. So I was like, oh, it's going to be interesting. So I go for a talk. Because you're already a scuba diver, right? Uh, at this time, I was already a scuba diver, mm -hmm. yes, and okay. um, and I was actively looking for using my engineering skills in conservation work, mm -hmm. and I thought, hey, I could apply to marine biology because there's so much that we don't know about the oceans. So I go to this talk, and he talks a little bit about his work on turtles because that's what his main focus used to be, and then he talks a lot about how his ethos in life was to you know, preserve uh, the natural balance of the world and specifically preserve turtle populations and get protections for them. And he also realized how everything he was doing was failing completely because he was coming at it from this highly vertical, I'm a marine biologist, I want to save these guys, um, so I'll tell you that we need to save them. And it mm -hmm. wasn't working. So he went about to learn how the brain works through neuroscience to craft the message of what he was trying to say so that people would actually understand and take action from it. And he gave this very interesting example that the slogan for Coca-Cola at the time used to be open happiness, just these two words. And he said that these two words did not come out from some ad agency, but came out of 10 years of research on neuroscience from within Coca-Cola. They had a neuroscience lab so that they could better sell Coca-Cola products to people. And it clearly works. So I got very inspired by this, you know, cross-pollination idea and being able to mix different sciences, different approaches to life. So at the end of the talk, I just go up to him and be like, hey, I'm this washed up engineer. I just quit my job. I want to do something good. Can you help me? <laughs> so we had a good laugh about that for a bit. And he was like, 
hmm, have you heard of Mozambique? I was like, yeah, I think it's got all the vowels of the English alphabet and <laughs> it has a machine gun on its flag. And those are the only two things I knew about Mozambique. And uh, two weeks later, I, you know, I'm, in, I'm living in Mozambique and I, I gave away and sold everything I had and I moved to East Africa. Wow. So, yes, Jay definitely inspired you. Uh, and it's amazing that, you know, he came into your life at that time where you were really searching for a way to apply your skills in, in technology to some sort of conservation focus. And that just happened to be focused on the ocean. And so you went to Mozambique and you were working with the Marine Megafauna Foundation. And listeners, if you remember, I think it's... Uh, two or three episodes back now, I had on Andrea Marshall, who is the co-founder of the Marine Megafauna Foundation. She's, you know, known as the queen of mantas, right? So a big part of their research is manta rays. And it all started with the manta rays in Mozambique. So again, after this episode, if you want to listen to Andrea's episode about manta rays, I highly recommend it. It will also be relevant to what Ando and I are about to talk about, um, his work with the Marine Megafauna Foundation. So you get to Mozambique, you're with Andrea Marshall and the, you know, manta ray team. What what were you doing in terms of applying your technology to their work? So my role was twofold. Um, it was to help design and build an underwater camera trap specifically for identifying manta rays. And it was to use those images that would be captured off manta rays and correlate them to a database of existing uh, manta rays. They, they call the system Manta Matcher, so that you could automatically do this identification process. Um, and this is important in two ways. One is that um, underwater camera traps uh, had not been invented at that point. And, and for those who don't know, a camera trap is basically a device that is automatically triggered by a particular animal you know, being in the presence of it. So you'll have seen uh, possibly videos out in forests where you, you see a bear walking by or a jaguar walking by and they use infrared light and it creates this beam and anything crosses that beam, click, and you get a picture of what happened there. Um, and this is notoriously difficult to do underwater because there's the trigger mechanisms are extremely uh, tricky. So infrared light doesn't work. So we had to come up with various techniques to be able to build a, a camera trap that uh, would work underwater. Um, secondly, once you capture those images, you have this database of a lot of different manta images. And a manta ray has these, uh, these patterns. And a pattern is unique to an individual. You can think of it as a, a thumbprint. And so you can identify specific individuals just by taking photographs of them. And Marine Megafauna Foundation used to go out diving almost every day or every other day, weather and conditions willing, and they would try to find a mandarin, get underneath it, take a picture and come back with those pictures. And then it would be manually compared to every other image in the database and then be like, is this a match or not a match? So you can do very simple things like, hey, I've seen this individual in Mozambique and it's also been seen in in Burma, so that means they migrate across the Indian Ocean. So suddenly you have this fascinating piece of data about the lives of manta rays. But in a very manual and slow, arduous way. And very expensive as well, time-wise and cost-wise, because going out diving you know, once or twice a day, every day, 
you're not efficient and it's expensive to do. So there was a PhD student who was also working with Marine Mega Foundation uh, called Daniel. Um, and so Daniel and I collaborated together to build this underwater camera trap. And it was very interesting project from so many different angles because this was going to be in um, a cleaning station where manta rays come and these uh, particular fish that live in this reef, they come and they, they pick off bacteria and little things that grow on the manta rays and clean them essentially. And so they would end up hanging about these reefs for longer than usual. So we, the idea was to install a, a camera trap in one of these cleaning stations. And this cleaning station was about 24 meters deep. And so this camera trap would have to stay down there for long periods of time and be able to you know, pick out manta rays in a reef full of fish. So if you if you build a camera trap that just you know triggered on anything, then you're just gonna constantly get <laughs> pictures of fish. So we had to find a way that you would trigger on only larger animals like manta ray or a leopard shark going by, and those would be of interest because, again, with leopard sharks and other animals, you can also do um, individual identification. Mm -hmm. And so you were able to make a working prototype and and one that was deployed for some time and was taking lots of images of the manta rays, right? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, the manta matcher software itself, which is doing the automatic matching. Uh, so part of that algorithm was devised by a Cambridge professor and um, using neural network technology, and which is the basis of artificial intelligence. And we, we managed to implement that, and that was that. that is uh, a running success. Wow. Yeah, and so listeners, um, again, I highly recommend uh, listening to my podcast episode with Andrea because we do talk more about manta matcher and how you can actually as a scuba diver a snorkeler if you're seeing manta rays you can take photos of them and actually uh, manually upload them to manta matcher as well um, and then add them to that database so check that out like I said so Ando you you know obviously you're very focused on the technology side of things like you said you know you're very very driven by you know engineering and creating actual tools to to help people and to solve problems and at some point started to transition into using those skills for you know helping the environment and helping the ocean one thing that you talked about when you were giving your presentation at the blue mind summit was uh, about empathy and how you the reason that you really love creating technologies is to increase and promote empathy uh, within humans to care more about each other, to care more about the planet, the ocean. Can you talk a little bit about that, you know, that driving force for you of really thinking of technology as a tool to increase empathy? Like Jay discovered, and me, I, I discovered similarly much later, is that changing the hearts and minds of people and influencing that is is infinitely harder than building tools and doing science. And if, if we have to make lasting change and if we want to project uh, the trajectory of society as it is today, that is the most crucial tool set that one needs is to be able to change the hearts and minds of people. And working with technology, I, I came across um, this particular one called virtual reality about five years ago. I used to do a lot of panoramic photography and then I realized, hey, I could probably build a video camera that does this um, and then do 360 degree video 
which can be used for virtual reality. So it can, you know, with the with the correct hardware and the headset, I can now transport you to being under the oceans or, you know, flying above a mountain or being in space. And it's not just that you are seeing these things. Uh, virtual reality, when it's done correctly, can actually trick your brain into believing that you are there. And doing that with hardware and the right software is difficult. It's quite hard. So I got very interested in understanding virtual reality as a storytelling tool that can bring about empathy. So I'm inherently not so much interested in building technology as I am in building empathy and getting people to understand each other and uh, human beings to understand the world that they live in. And just in the same way that, you know, the, all the different kinds of media affect us, I think virtual reality has the ability uh, to positively affect change, and which is why I'm involved in it. Yeah, that's great. I love it. And when you started talking about that, I was like, I'm totally hooked. I love this, you know, because I'm... <laughs> I very much so focus on sharing positive messages of change and, you know, looking at ways to positively impact the ocean, the planet through, you know, human connection, education, conversations, obviously, hence the podcast. So, you know, I, I love everything that you just said about, you know, why you're involved with virtual reality it's not about the technology or the headsets it's about the people that are putting them on and what that immersive experience will potentially bring them so listeners um if some of you haven't heard of virtual reality which i think probably most of you have heard of virtual reality at this point but it is you know still a relatively new technology so um, if any of you haven't heard of virtual reality Ando, can you just give us a super simple definition of, of what it is? I'll put it in a cheeky way. Virtual reality is a way to hijack your senses into transporting you somewhere or making you feel something by involving all your senses or a, a particular set of senses. So, for example, virtual reality today, for the most part, takes over your senses of sight and sound. So you'll wear this boxy looking thing on your face and you'll have <laughs> headphones or something similar and you'll be able to look around and sometimes even walk around. And instead of being in your living room, um, you're actually on the surface of Mars. Yeah. So like I mentioned in the beginning, you're the co-founder and CTO of Ballast Technologies, which is the world's first aquatic virtual reality company. So obviously there are I don't know, hundreds, maybe thousands of virtual reality companies in the world. But Ballast, again, why you know your work is so intriguing to me, and hopefully listeners, you are interested as well. It's you know aquatic. So essentially, if I put it into you know simple terms, you are allowing users to have this virtual reality experience, like you just described, where you know you put on a headset and you are you know visually. Uh, immersed in a totally different environment than you are in. However, you are now in some form of body of water and you're actually either, you know, floating or going through water somehow. So it's really taking over like almost all of your senses, right? Not just sight and sound or not just sight, but it's you're floating and you're in water and you hear the water and you feel it and, you know, the lack of gravity and all these sorts of things. So 
I know that with Ballast you have these uh, kind of slides in different theme parks that you've implemented this VR into. And then you also kind of have the snorkeling side of things where it's like someone's snorkeling on a coral reef or something. So where did this idea come from? What was the light bulb for you and your co-founders of like, you know, if we want to do virtual reality about the ocean, we need people to actually be in water. Rewind to 2013. I'm in Mozambique. And um, this is about the end of the the Manta Matcher project, and we we've basically finished testing on the the camera trap, and that that was the beginning of whale season in Mozambique. And whale season in Tofu Bay in Mozambique is insane. We would do these uh, whale surveys where we would you know climb up to a sand dune and just do a sweep and count how many whales we could see, either breaching or fin slapping or spouts. And I've counted more than 100 in a bay. So when you go diving, you are completely surrounded by whales, whether you know it or not. And sometimes they'll come and swim by, but you'll always be able to hear them. And on this one dive, which was maybe about 20 meters, uh, that day the visibility was really bad. Like I couldn't even see my hand if I held it out in front of me. It was a, I was in this milky soup. I've lost my buddy, which is the first rule of diving. Don't lose your buddy. <laughs> <laughs> that's my buddy the swell so we, i'm being tossed up and down there's current so i'm swinging here and there completely lost i don't know where i am can't see anything all these whales are singing around me so i'm freaking out and then i have this moment where this one whale or more than one whale came so close to me but i can't see it because there's i'm in a soup it came so close to me that my rib cage started vibrating at whale song and this whale was singing so loudly that it felt like the whale song was just emanating from within me. And I just like let go and I relaxed in the water and all my fears disappeared. And I felt like I connected with this whale <laughs> and the ocean. And I had this like really surreal moment. It was so beautiful. And as soon as I came out, I'm like, I want to take this to people. How can I make that experience come alive for people in a way that they'd be able to connect to creatures where they would otherwise have no way of connecting. And interestingly enough, one of my co-founders had the idea of doing virtual reality in water when he saw a scene in Stranger Things. Which um, is 11, a show on Netflix, if anyone doesn't which is, know. Yeah, and so there's a scene, without giving away any spoilers, there's a scene, <laughs> <laughs> okay, a little bit of a spoiler, where she's in a tank of water in a um, transparent helmet. And uh, my, my friend and co-founder, Stephen, he was like, oh, what if we put people in, uh, in VR underwater and then they will be able to float and have the zero-gravity experiences? And we didn't know each other at the time. And we had a common friend who told both of us that, hey, you guys have been talking about the same thing for a while. You should, you should talk to each other. So that's how we got to know each other. And we decided to just... You know, experiment and said, hey, why don't we just build a headset, get in the water, see what virtual reality is like in the water. And we don't even know if it's going to work. And we did. And it turned out that it was really, really cool because being in the water does something very interesting to us. Right. We, we know that it makes you lose your sense of gravity. You're floating. Um, the other thing that happens is that your sense of proprioception, which is knowing where your body is in space and then which part of your body is where also gets affected somehow and we're not entirely sure how what the mechanism is yet but 
when you add virtual reality, you're seeing something else. You're, and we also have underwater sound. You're hearing something else. You're feeling the water. You're not feeling gravity. You're smelling the water as well. So it's involving all your senses. So using this combination does something very, very interesting. And it's, um, it's very hard to talk about. It's, it's one of those things that you just sort of have to experience. It's just from an experiential point of view, there's so much stuff you can do with this. So right now we have an experience where you go on a drift dive. So you're actually drifting down through a reef, through a shipwreck, and you interact with all of these animals. And then eventually you go out and you come out and you hang out of these whales in the middle of the sea where you can't even see the bottom. Um, of course, they had to be whales. Mm-hmm, <laughs> of course. And we also have an experience where you're, um, you're like in, in space and you're floating but through the International Space Station and out in open space. Um, and so we're experimenting with a, a few fairly simple worlds right now that you can sort of explore and inhabit, which are all around zero gravity experiences. Um, but I think there's a lot of very interesting things we can do with I, this. I definitely agree. So for listeners, how currently or maybe in the future could they experience some of this aquatic virtual reality that Ballast is putting out into the world? So for those who who have heard about virtual reality, um, you'll have heard about some amount of buzz about it over the past few years. And in general, you don't have a virtual reality headset in your house. Mm-hmm. And that's for a good reason. It's expensive. It's fairly mediocre. And I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> <laughs> and um, this is the reality of technology right now. Is that doing virtual reality is very hard. It takes uh, a lot of different forces to, to come into some sort of magical alignment for it to work. And in general, the, the good kind of virtual reality, the one that's actually worth it, is very expensive. It is getting cheaper. There is getting a better set of experiences and content that you can try and do and actually actually use it for work even. Like I use virtual reality to design three-dimensional objects because why do it on a 2D screen? You can do it in actual three-dimensional space. So virtual reality is getting there, but it's, it's, it's a way away from being in your house. And when I say virtual reality, it also applies to augmented reality. In my mind, they're uh, almost identical. Mm-hmm. And augmented reality is where y- you are not transported somewhere else. You're, you are inhabiting your own world, but then three-dimensional objects and let's say even people and overlays are added to your world. So the thing is that with the technology where it is now, it's very hard for the average person to access it. So the best place to actually experience these things right now is in in places like theme parks, water parks, museums that have the ability to hold this technology in-house and you can just go try it. So what we did was that last year we got contracted to build this uh, VR water slide where you go down an actual water slide wearing a virtual reality headset and then instead of going down this like tube you are now flying through space or going through an underwater world or through a jungle and which is surprising amounts of fun like when they asked us to build this we we're like what are you sure you want this and then so we built a really quick prototype and tried it on a slide we're like whoa this is so much fun so um we are in a bunch of water parks right now we're trying to build out the vr slide 
it's uh, it already exists in the largest water park in Europe. It's called Galaxy. It's just outside Munich in Germany. Um, and we're building a few more in Europe as well. And in the meantime, we're also trying... Um, so we, we're also setting up our virtual reality snorkeling system, which we called Diver, D-I-V-R. Uh, I know, very clever of us. Nice, very nice. <laughs> and we haven't uh, publicly disclosed the location yet, but I can put that out on our website very soon. But it's going to be in Europe, and we're also looking at distributors in North America, in Asia, where these are going to be set up in water parks to begin with. So cool. you could go to a water park and get in a pool and then go swimming with whales for five minutes. Wow. Okay, so listeners, currently you can go to some water parks in Europe and try out the ballast VR slide, which apparently is really amazing. But what I'm even more super excited for is someday getting to go to a water park or on a museum or an aquarium where ballast VR is uh, available and getting to do this VR snorkeling experience where I get to, you know, hear the whales just like Ando did in real life. So I highly recommend checking out Ballast Technologies website. So when I post this podcast episode, I will link to ballastvr.com so you guys can check them out there. And like Ando said, stay up to date with the announcements that they make when they are releasing their different technologies in different places. And um, I will also link to Ando's personal website. It is ando.xyz. So you can check out all of the projects that he's worked on that some of them have nothing to do with the ocean. So if you're you know, really into technology or really into photography or media um, or just empathy like he said because that's something that drives him a lot you can check out his website there and um, I will also link to his Instagram account so you guys can follow him and you know send him a direct message if you have questions or tell him how inspiring he is uh, or ask about the aquatic virtual reality that he creates so um, Ando I want to thank you so much for all of the positive change that you're creating for the ocean with your work in VR, but utilizing it to create empathy, especially towards the ocean. I love that. And uh, just, you know, sharing your amazing journey of being super, super scared of the ocean and now being, you know, someone that's, like I said, really creating positive change for it. So I want to thank you for that. And I also want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed talking with you. Alison, it's been an absolute pleasure. I'm I'm really glad we got to do this. And thank you so much for spreading the word in the way you do. Um, you know, I think we're all trying to be better people and um, be the best version of ourselves. So Yeah, and learn from each other. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you. Okay. Thank you very much. You just heard Ando Shah, co-founder and chief technology officer of Ballast Technologies, the world's first aquatic virtual reality company. To learn more about the topics discussed in this podcast, visit my website at oceanallison.com and tune into next month's episode to hear another conversation between me and someone creating positive change for the ocean.